and welcome again and joining us with another thrilling exciting class in the bunker thank you for being here uh, as always thank you so much for those that uh, let us know where you're coming from and then when you click like and share I've been I've found that as a number of you have been sharing uh, we've been reaching out to a number of people who are maybe kind of watched for the first time and they didn't know until you shared it so thank you for all of those who are just taking the time to quickly hit share and send this off in a, in a lot of fun directions so thanks for being here uh, today's class um, we're going to take just a little bit of a step back for just a second because we've been kind of deep in uh, Moses in Egypt and and uh, we're about to move them from underneath the Pharaoh and going through all of the plagues to we're about to park them at the middle of Mount Sinai and that's going to be for a group of uh, Hebrews who were Egyptianized if you will uh, and and they're going to have some doubts about who God is and how God works while they're there at the mountain and deciding what they want to do in their relationship uh, with God. So I thought it would be helpful if uh, today we talked a little bit about doubts and certainty or uncertainty. And I, I'm going to make kind of the proposal today that sometimes maybe our, our rush for certainty can sometimes be a bit overrated and it might even just get in our way. So let, let's hop into this. One of the things that spurs this, I think, is uh, some new research that recently came out where they were looking at trying to categorize people in the world and how, they, how religious do they feel, how, who do they affiliate, and how religious are they. And here was kind of the shocking thing that came out of that. Uh, still, 33% uh, as they were in this vast survey that they did, 33% were identified themselves as Christian. Another 21% saw themselves as Muslim. But look at what comes in up in number three. Number three is non-religious. In other words, the non-religious or nuns or those that don't feel like they're religious in any way. They're completely secular. They may or may not be atheist, but they're the third largest group in all of this. And that trend of this th third largest group now, uh, it seems to be uh, gaining traction. It's been there in Europe for a long time, certainly in uh, what we're seeing in the United States is also very similar to these same numbers that that uh, this increasing amount of people that don't just see themselves as unaffiliated, they see themselves as non-religious. And, and the question is why? Why are so many uh, good people uh, flocking away from religions and more to either spirituality or uh, s some other brand of kind of personal belief for themselves? Let's talk about that for a sec. Now, in response to that, I would say the brethren are a little worried um, about those that are seeing themselves this way. And, and we have this beautiful quote from, uh, who was then President Uchtdorf, who reminded us and was anxious that we doubt our doubts. If you have doubts, why don't we doubt them first? Uh, and that we be careful in the, the doubters that we're talking to. Well, I... 
I'm going to push back on that just a little because I think I know where uh, Elder Uchtdorf is going with this, uh, and, and it's a place I can, I can really, really support as we, as we take a look at doubting in general because we have a, quite a history, actually, of in, when we read the scriptures and we, and we look at doubt, even though the word doubt only shows up in the Old Testament just once, um, we have this. Look unto me in every, in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. So we've tended to associate doubt and fear and try and put those uh, together, because, saying that when you doubt, you fear. How about this one? Doubt not, but be believing. This, uh, this urging by the Lord to say, don't be doubting, please believe. And, and we'll talk about that in a second, about what it is that we are to believe and what it is that we're actually to doubt. If ye have faith and doubt not, we've tended to say, if you have doubts, you have no faith. Um, and then again, we're faced with the man who says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I'm stuck somewhere between believing and not believing. Um, and finally, wherefore can ye doubt because of the things that you have seen? Well, again, let's find out what it is that we are to be uh, doubting. Because in reality, uh, the, the, the truth of this is that... Um, the restoration of the gospel was slowly, carefully revealed, bit by bit, piece by piece, scripture by scripture. It was revealed in answer to doubts and in answer to questions. The whole of, of the church began with a boy, a 14-year-old boy, with doubts and a question. Where of all the churches can I find salvation? The Book of Mormon came to us because the same boy has doubts about his own worthiness. Yes, he tended to like beat up other guys on work details if they weren't working well enough, and he had doubts about his own worthiness. And so he goes to the Lord in prayer about a doubt. And what he receives is an angelic visitor and a calling and a responsibility. So we're going to find here that there, there is in this gospel, I think, an important place for doubts. But where? Where do those doubts, should, should those doubts be directed at? Now, I want to draw today on, on uh, the work of a, of a uh, very good man, a Christian pastor, uh, Richard McLaren, who is talking about, he, he's categorized people that struggle with their religion and with doubts uh, in kind of a systematic way. You watch them work their way through stages to kind of a healthy place where their Christianity can really grow and develop in a really powerful way. And interestingly enough, when we look at this as Latter-day Saints, there's a lot of this that should feel and resonate with us as very familiar and very effective. So let's take a look at these. Uh, first of all, we have stage one. And stage one, um, he's called simplicity. That uh, 
that I, I tend to call that this stage one area, we, let's just call the fortress. Uh, and in as much as my counseling practice is, is cofort counseling, I thought I would use a picture of cofort in central Utah where my great-grandfather was uh, born and my great-great-grandfather helped build. Um, so when we're in simplicity in stage one, it's about staying inside the fortress and it's a very binary way of thinking. It's an all or nothing uh, way. It's, it's dualistic. It's us inside the fortress or them on the outside of the fortress. Which one are we? Are we in or are we out? And we stay inside and protected in our fortress. It is then, so it's the righteous inside the fortress versus the world out there. You, you don't want to be out there. You want to be in here. There was very much a, an interest in the church in the early days to gather people inside the fortress and protect them. Like in the Great Basin, let's make sure that we are removed away from everything else. Uh, the, the Salt Lake Temple was built with battlements that look like a, like a fortress uh, castle wall that is like we're keeping the world out and we're going to keep people safe inside this area. We are to avoid and shun the world. You uh, don't want to be part of that. that. That's a problem. And so everything is seen very much in terms of good or evil. Which side are you on? Who's on the Lord's side? Who? And it, and a lot of times then that can be all or nothing. And we tended over the years to say in this dualistic, very kind of a simplistic all or nothing them or us kind of approach is that we not only that, we had all truth and they really didn't have much of anything. Uh, we, we had all truth restored and we had to pull it away from them who just didn't have anything. Okay? And that's a very simplistic uh, simplicity in the way that uh, you look at it. Now, the next step beyond and, and step down from simplicity then would be stage two, and that is complexity. That is where you begin to open up the fortress doors and we're going to go from inside the fortress to send people out into the world, gather them and bring them back in. But you can't do that without combating and coming in contact with and in competition with other ways of believing and other faiths with their way of looking at things. And so if you're going to send out your army of Helaman to the world, they're going to go out with devout fire and fury and a, and a rigid defense of the faith. So I call that, this is gatekeeper zeal, and I've got the black knight guarding the road here. Okay, In this gatekeeper zeal, then it's important that you then defend the doctrines of the church and you defend it vociferously against anybody that would attack. You're going to be quick to challenge anybody that is, is going to uh, slight or in any way uh, denigrate uh, the church or the prophets 
or a doctrine or, or God or religion or anything else. And that means you're going to be very, very reactive to criticism. Why? Because when you're in this gatekeeper mode, it's your job to guard the gate. Don't let the heathen hordes in, and you've got to protect it. Um, and so that means that, that uh, when we are in this gatekeeper mode, we kind of tend to be fervent recruiters. Uh, we're anxious to get everybody here, and we are anxious to disprove anybody who believes differently than we do. You know, our zeal is like, oh my gosh, they might believe something else. Now, if you're not sure these gatekeepers exist, and we're going to talk about them a couple of times uh, in the next few minutes, put something out on Facebook that you think might be a little bit uh, inflammatory, and watch how fast the gatekeepers of their philosophy or other beliefs are going to quickly come to disprove you. They can't let your lies stand on Facebook or Twitter. They're coming after you. If you're going to say something positive about the church, they're going to quickly come back and talk about Joseph Smith and money and corporate greed and, you know, and, and by the same token, somebody else who might be attacking Mormonism, you know, the gatekeepers of the church are going to probably step in and go, I have a testimony and let me quote to you scripture because I cannot let your uh, hypocrisy stand here. I've got to attack. Uh, there is just this fervent veal, uh, veal, uh, fervent zeal that goes with that. Along with that, you've got if, if you're going to be this fervent, you've got to be able to uh, have very strict rules. Who's acceptable and who's not? Who's orthodox and who's not? And the gatekeepers will be the first one to tell you that if you're doing something that's a little less orthodox, that you're on the slippery slope and you're sti starting to slide away. And, and they're going to let you know quickly uh, that you should immediately get back on because they're, they're nervous. And, and if you go too far, then they may end up shunning you because you, you were heading off and you got on the outside of the fortress and you're going to stay there and now you've told us who you are. You're one of them. You're one of those people. You're not one of us people. Okay, So this gatekeeper zeal is one that comes with a lot of, lot of juice to it. Now, in reality, brothers and sisters, there are a lot of people in the world, not just in our church, but in other churches and uh, religious contexts and political contexts, and who, who uh, will spend all of their life in, in stage one simplicity or stage two complexity. And they're going to be quite happy inside that as they see it uh, and they will die in one of those two places, probably with a smile on their face. Here's the problem, though, and here's why it is that, that I want to address this uh, today. While many believers are going to remain in their entire lives in stage one, these stages, simplicity and complexity, can be overly brittle, and they can be subject to collapse and when they collapse, it's painful, and they begin to join the ranks of this third 
largest group of the religiously unaffiliated non-religious people. Let me show you why. These stages, first of all, can easily lead to judging and othering. In other words, we may feel a sense of superiority that we are here and you are one of the great unwashed. Or you used to be here, I can't believe that you're now there, so now I have to kind of turn my back on you uh, because I, can't, I thought you were smarter than that and how come you're, you're doing that. Uh, we can easily judge. We've talked before about uh, St. Augustine in the 4th century talking about the fact that one of the joys of those in heaven is watching the burning of those in hell. You know, we should be able to judge that they're finally getting their car karma has caught up uh, to those guys. And we can catch ourselves judging as we walk, watch people walk into church and say, uh, like the Pharisee did, I'm grateful to God I'm not one of them. Now, here's the other problem that comes in, in remaining in stage one and stage two. Despite the hope of peace through being absolutely certain with every fiber of your being that something is absolutely true and I can never be shaken from that. These stages can bring about fear of being worthy enough. How do you make sure you're not slowly sliding and being one of the others? How do you know? you got to double down on it. Maybe like the Pharisees that used to build a hedge around the wall of the law. Maybe to make sure that you are among the, the righteous from your gatekeeper position, you've got to create extra Sabbath rules. That maybe you're trying to keep the Sabbath day holy, but let's, let's stay in our Sunday clothes all day long because we want to do that which is fine if, we, if, if that works for us. But the problem comes when we begin to judge those that don't do that. Or we decide to leave off all of our screens and TVs on Sunday because we found that works for us. Great, until we begin to judge those that don't do that and, and begin to assume a level of righteousness that we have that they don't. And so there's that constant worth, worthiness worry about others and about ourselves. In all of our righteousness, we can be a, a little bit hard to get along with. Okay? Now, here's the other problem. These stages can also create the need to be hypersensitive to criticisms we might have no real answer for. I believe that so many members, one of the reasons why, if their kids were ever going to ask why it is that there was a priesthood ban for a number of years or why the church did this or that the real reason was they didn't have an immediate answer they couldn't they didn't have an answer for it either what about polygamy well it's not important to your salvation cuz i really i really don't have an answer either okay uh, so we are become more sensitive in these stages and reactive and hypersensitive hypersensitivity leads to anxiety watching and worrying and waiting you might see something on Facebook that would be upsetting or might be a problem 
Um, and that, and so it never gets to be a religion of peace. It needs to be a religion almost of warfare and constant vigilance and worry about our own worthiness and worthy about spotting uh, the, the wolves and sheep's clothing that might be out there as well. Here's the other problem. This ends up being brittle and sometimes, like I say, it's maybe subject to collapse. Why would it collapse? Well, stage three, perplexity, is that stage where it begins to collapse. And this is where the doubts come that people struggle with. After living in simplicity or complexity, now they have questions for which they have no answers. And now we have those that struggle, and many in that third group, and, and are lost. Why are they lost? Well, they become disillusioned by something from church history, by doctrine, that they have, that they have a hard time understanding why the church has done this thing, or why a bishop or stake president chose this particular direction to go. By a certain uh, church leader uh, that they disagree with, or a statement that doesn't make any sense, okay? Because of that, they might begin to question God. Why would God do that? I, I have a belief in a God that does this, and this is what's happening. Authority figures, maybe not just in religion, but just in general, I begin to not trust any authority figures, uh, or religion in general. And you start to say, well, there just seems to be a lot of rules and a lot of ways to be wrong, and, and we're kind of upset about that. Um, and so now, often these, these doubts then, you begin to doubt what you learned and what you believed in stage one and stage two. Maybe what I was taught when I was little isn't really true. Maybe, and I've got questions about this thing. And, but, and when I ask questions, the answers were never satisfactory. Especially for those of you who are watching this, who have always throughout all of your life asked lots and lots of questions and you needed to know why. And when that why was never satisfactorily answered or brushed off or seen as insignificant, you start to say, maybe they're hiding something. Maybe there's something they don't want us to know. Maybe that's a problem. Now, because of that then, those that are in perplexity and suddenly they, have fi they find out that what they thought was built on really solid rock turns out that it was on sand and it's starting to shift and they're not knowing what I thought I believed I, may not be true and what I, my parents told me or what people at church told me, maybe that's not true either. And so now what, what begins to enter is that fear of like, what if I got duped? What if I've been betrayed? What if I've been lied to? Hmm. Well, because of that, they begin to struggle with anger and her pain about past belief. I thought I was pretty smart. Am I that naive? Why did I believe that? Why did they tell me it was true? 
what did I miss? And then it's almost like a chagrin that says, and I spend all of my life, I went as a missionary, and I told people that I uh, things that I don't necessarily believe at the moment. And suddenly the bottom drops out. The sand begins to shift. And now there's a real struggle. What do I believe? What is true? Is God even real? What? How does that... How does that work? Maybe I'm missing something. Mixed in with that, though, often for these people, is going to be this freedom, though, from all of those old rules. It'd be nice to be able to do something that wasn't so rule-bound. And I don't have to worry about guilt and restraint in fact, I was kind of, maybe I was silly to be keeping all of those rules when the rest of the world seems to be quite happy and having a great time. And yet, I'm dogged by what I used to believe, and it's hard to get that out of my head. Because there is no doubt at that time, certain times during simplicity, and in complexity, I was happy, and I was thrilled, and I felt like I was doing God's work, or I felt like I understood everything, and to be able to lose all of that is really disconcerting, and for so many people, it's about despair and pain. And my heart really goes out to those that have struggled uh, with this level of uh, suddenly not knowing where to turn and and where they're moored to. Well, sometimes what happens then um, when we get in this place, there's a variety of ways that somebody struggling with doubt and, and perplexity can respond. Uh, there's a couple of ways to do this. And one way is if we're going to go from simplicity inside the fortress out to complexity where we're, we're the gatekeeper of all that is good. When you bump up against this perplexity, this state of being disillusioned to what you thought you believed, one way to handle that coming up against those doubts is to actually go ahead and bury those questions and those doubts. I'll ju I just won't deal with it. I'll just put it on the shelf, leave it alone, and what you do is retreat back to simplicity and double down on the, the, the rigid black or white thinking because I don't even want to go there. I won't allow myself to think there, kind of a la, 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 la. I'm just not going to handle that at all. Okay? That is certainly one way to handle it. One of the things that often happens those that, with those that are struggling with doubts and feel betrayed and feel hurt is that they do, they do another thing, and that is that they simply opt out completely. They, they become the group three, the non-believers that is growing every day. And this is especially true in the lives of millennials 
and the Z generation, the younger ones, who uh, it's just easy to, easier to just opt out rather than go to a place of rules or some that they might feel is unfair, unfair to someone like LGBT or somebody else. Or just, I'm just going to opt out. Don't need the rules. Don't need religion. I'm not even sure I need spirituality. I'm just opting out. What is fascinating for a lot of those, this group though, is that often in that sense of wanting to opt out, they actually, if, if they're carrying a certain amount of anger and hurt and pain with them, it's hard to just opt out and walk away. So what happens is they actually become a defender of opting out. And in a weird turnaround, they go back to gatekeeping. Only in this case, they're going to gatekeep against anybody who does believe. So these are the ones that are going to hop onto your religious post and go, nah, I used to believe that. You're an idiot. You're a sheeple if you're going to believe that stuff because I have my beliefs and I'm going to be quick to tell you why it is that your beliefs are full of holes and tell you why Joseph Smith was a fool and you're a fool and anybody who believes it is stupid uh, and is just giving in. You know, and they become their own gatekeepers of their opting out non-believerness. And in the same way that believers can be fairly obnoxious in their fervency, these opting out gatekeepers can also in their own sense be pretty obnoxious about defending the need to, to leave religion alone. So where do we go here when, when these guys are just going to push back against the simple and we have this battle going on and then there's even a more of a polarization between which fortress are you going to go to? Well, I want to suggest in the time that we have remaining that the term doubt actually has as it in Greek, it actually means to separate out. It means to distinguish. To doubt actually kind of means to research, to dig around like these archaeologists, to, to rather than just walk away, that it should spur us, I believe, and I, and I think this is what, what uh, Elder Uchtdorf was beginning to get at. To doubt in this case means to open our hearts and open our minds to even greater research. Rather than close our mind in a, in a simplicity sort of way, allow doubts like Joseph Smith saying, the idea of heaven and hell doesn't work. Let's take it to the Lord and see what he says about just heaven and hell. And then section 76, a, a whole new level of revelation comes to a doubting Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon who had questions and got answers beyond their wildest ideas that they would. And in that case, doubt became a very powerful propelling forward. So in other words, what, what I'm going to suggest is that if we will allow, if we won't be freaked out by doubt, separate out what might have been false understandings and embrace truth wherever you find it. Joseph Smith said you can find truth in Catholicism, you can find truth in Methodism, 
while he was getting ready to translate the New Testament, he drew heavily on the work of um, Adam Clark, a biblical commentator. Joseph Smith drew truth wherever he found it, from masonry and was not threatened by the fact that there was other truth in other places. But he could only do that by doubting that he knew it all and be willing to be taught. So, what is the final stage here then? Stage four is harmony. It's a sense of exploring. It is learning what we have learned, but then harmonizing it with new information that comes along so that we can sort through this. So let me suggest that where I think Elder Uchtdorf was so on point, that this is where our challenge should lie. Rather than doubt God, first doubt your understanding of God. Rather than doubt God or the existence of God, how about if you start by doubting how you have understood God? Perhaps you were taught a God of somebody else's image. Perhaps you were taught a God who was so overly bent on justice and vengeance that you missed the God of mercy and love. We're waiting for so many people, brothers and sisters, they're waiting for this God at the end of the world who's going to pull up a select few people in the sky and then with fire and brimstone murder the rest of his children simply because at that moment they didn't believe in him. Can you imagine for a second doing that as a parent? Think if you've got four kids and you're angry at what these kids are doing, but you've got one of the kids, one of your kids that really is believing everything you're saying. And so you pull that kid to you and then allow your other kids to be really tortured. We wouldn't do that as parents. Why? as we look at the symbolism of revelations and stuff like that, would we believe that that the God of the universe is anxious to cause pain and suffering and destruction and burning to the rest of his children when the the this God that we might come to understand says, I will give them a million chances, to quote C.S. Lewis, I will give them a million chances if they will accept but once and we will and I will keep trying till they get them all home that is the god that we worship so let's can we along with elder uchtdorf can we doubt our understanding of god before we doubt god maybe we were taught it wrong So, in the last few minutes here then, what does harmony look like? I believe that harmony means loving your neighbor no matter their beliefs. They are children of God. For God so loved the world. God so loved, 
the world, as Patrick Mason has pointed out. God doesn't hate the world. God loves them, regardless of their beliefs. And every aspect of their belief in their direction may lead them to be better people. God loves the world. Let's love our neighbors. Let's not be threatened by another's opinions and beliefs. They may be different from ours. We can seek to understand why they believe the way they do. We might be curious enough to, and be open that, that they have things to teach us. Joseph Smith certainly saw that. Let's search and find and embrace truth from whatever source we may find it. Elder Holland, uh, in a major address just recently, mentioned that uh, the Bible that he uses to study with isn't necessarily the King James Version. He uses the NRSV Oxford edition. It's one that, that I certainly love and use. Wherever we can find that truth, let's do that. If we can do that in a polarized world, harmony, this stage of Christianity and godness, we can allow ourselves to have disagreements without disputations. We can love without having to divide and categorize. And we can remove the fortress and be able to reach out into the world and be a force for good, which we can't do from inside the fortress. So, let me finish by saying this, that this is what I believe stage four harmony looks like. Truly loving, truly loving, says more about the heart of the lover than the merit of the receiver. If we truly love, we are more interested in the state of our own heart and the fullness with which we love than worry about the merit of those that might be receiving it. Again, think as a parent. There is often times as parents that we love our kids when their merit would almost tell us that they don't deserve that love. But dang it, we love them anyway because we believe in their ultimate possibilities, not in their current disobedience or struggles or misunderstanding. So again, can we love from our whole heart and not make it based on their merit? Brothers and sisters, there is a place for doubt. If it's doubt that drives us to question where we have misunderstood the great God that we worship. There's a place for doubt if it drives us to greater research, to dig deeper into the depths of this gospel and past the shallowness of human understanding and find the richness that lies underneath. And only doubt will do that. Simplicity and complexity will prevent us from digging. Harmony 
will allow us with wonderful curiosity to find what the Lord has intended to teach us and to change us with. I bear you my testimony that the Lord intends us to love with all of our heart and to be able to become like Him by way of our doubts that drive us forward. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.